Thank you, Will, for selecting and leading songs about the resurrection of our Lord, which is fundamental to all that we believe and all that pertains to our salvation and faith, our victory. Thank you for that. And thank you, Kevin, for welcoming everyone here and getting our services underway and our good word of prayer in which we've joined our thoughts and petitions together as we praise God and approach Him in prayer. Good to see each of you tonight. And um, I consider it a joy, a wonderful opportunity each time I can stand before those who are interested in learning more about Jesus and about His Word. It's a joy on my part uh, to be able to do that, to preach the unsearchable riches of Jesus Christ. So glad my wife Linda goes with me everywhere and our grandson Will, that goes as often as he can, can, on trips like this, can be with us. You've seen the announcement that, um, uh, pertaining to the titles for the lesson that I submitted. And on, for this Wednesday night service, what I selected was the topic of what makes a strong church. It would seem to me to be a given that everyone should want to be a part of a strong church. I mean, I cannot imagine someone saying, oh, I'm okay with being part of a weak church. It doesn't matter. Uh, or, or I want to be like uh, it says of, of Sardis in Revelation 3 verse 1, that you have a name that you live, but you're dead. Or, or the letter to the church further in chapter 3 in Revelation to uh, the church at Laodicea, where the Lord said, because you're lukewarm, I will spew you out of my mouth. I, I cannot think of of, of one who would profess to be a child of God and say, well, that's okay, I, I want to contribute to helping to make a church lukewarm or may, maybe to have some sort of name or reputation, but, but it's really a dead church. And, and yet that's just lifting wording right from the scriptures there. And so what is it that makes a strong church? Somebody says, well, if the attendance is, is great, we've got large numbers. Um, if, if financially the church has uh, a lot of resources, a lot of money, then and, and the, the building, the, the facilities that the church meets in, if, if they're large and impressive, huge complex, then what would those things make a strong church? Is that what the Lord is looking for? As I got my thoughts together further for the lesson tonight, I wanted to make it clear that when we use the word church, we, as the Bible speaks of the, the, the word, it uses it basically in two ways. The Bible teaches that Christ shed his blood for the church. He loved the church. He gave himself for it. The, that Christ is the head of all things to the church, his body. Passages like that are referring to the church in what we might call the universal sense. By that I mean it's not making reference particularly to a local congregation. And what happens, and we talked about this Sunday, when wonderful things happen when you obey from the heart the gospel of Christ. One is, is delivered, as Colossians 1.13 says, from the power of darkness and translated into the kingdom of God's dear Son. Those who were saved in Acts 2 and verse 47 were added by the Lord to the church. And that's what the church is. It's, it's the body of the saved. It's simply men and women who have done what the Lord said to do 
to be saved. And it doesn't matter if they're living in the, the Czech Republic or in Italy or in Japan or in Alabama or in Florida or um, Canada or wherever brethren are all over the globe. They're, they're part of that one universal body. When, when Ephesians 4 says that there is one body in Ephesians 4, that verse 4, that's not saying there's one local church. But that, that's referring to the body of Christ, that for which he shed his blood, the, the people. Always, when, if you think of something besides people, uh, if you think of it as, as an, something apart from people that people get into, and it, it, it is the people. It saved people with Christ as the head of this spiritual body. And it's made up of individuals. The universal church doesn't have elders. The universal church is not what assembles to take the Lord's Supper. The universal church is not what on the first day of the week gives its contribution. The universal church doesn't have overseers. The Lord is the head, and again, it's made up of individuals that are saved. And some have passed on, and they're no less a part of the Lord's church, you see. So some are on earth, some have passed from this life. They're still the Lord's people. So just think of the Lord's people. And that's important. And a, a lot of things we could, we could say about that in another lesson. But tonight in particular, I'm going to be using the church in the other sense that the scriptures use the term. When, when reference is, is made to the church of God at Corinth that received two letters, 1 Corinthians and 2 Corinthians, or when Paul wrote uh, Philippians, in Philippians 1 verse 1, when he specified the, with the, to the church at Philippi with its bishops and its deacons and all the saints, he's talking there about the local church at Philippi. There was a local church at Ephesus. In fact, I've already referenced Revelation 2. Revelation 3, 2 and 3 mention seven churches, seven churches of Asia. By the way, there were more than that. But this, this book that uses so much symbolism, and the number seven is often used with symbolism, selects seven churches. They're representative. But seven local congregations. And so... That's the way we're using the term tonight, especially that we're going to be looking at, at uh, the, the local congregation. And, and here again, I'm, I'm not trying to spend a lot of time convincing you that the church of the Lord needs to be strong. That I'm, I'm not trying to argue against the thought that it's okay for it to be weak. The, the, ch the, the church needs to be strong to do the work that God has given it to do. The church needs to be strong to honor him and to fulfill its mission. So how is it that we go about having, again, if I'm misspeaking, you could correct me if I'm wrong about that, but I'm assuming that everyone here would be interested and want to know, well, what can we do? What can I do to make this congregation stronger? If one's part of another local church, to make that local congregation stronger. There's one passage I want to look at with you in Ephesians chapter 4 to help set the stage for some of the specific points that we're going to consider and we're going to be looking at Acts chapter 2 also and, and other passages as well. But in Ephesians chapter 4 you'll notice in verse 11 Ephesians 4 verse 11 
Speaking of Christ, it says, He himself gave some to be apostles, some prophets, some evangelists, some pastors, and teachers. Could I pause here and say that those first two terms, apostles and prophets, these are inspired men. We talked last evening about the role of the apostles. And it was through the apostles and prophets, Ephesians, this same book of Ephesians, chapter 3, verses 3 through 5, will say that what was a mystery had been made known, and so you can read, you can understand the revelation. And so they laid the foundation. They were the ones that received the word and, and preached it and wrote it by inspiration. They laid the foundation. Other foundation can no man lay than that which is laid, which is Christ Jesus. And uh, yet Paul made reference to the foundation of the apostles and prophets in this same book of Ephesians, chapter 1, and... Um, Verse 20, having been built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets. So they laid the foundation. Now, I'm still in Ephesians 4. But then he says, some evangelists. Evangelists are gospel preachers. Timothy was told, do the work of an evangelist. Then next he says, and some pastors. Well, a lot of people use the word pastor to mean a preacher. But the biblical use of the word pastor is he's the shepherd. He tends the flock. Pastors are Elders, they're, they're bishops, all, those are interchangeable words. They're overseers that, that superintend the flock. And that right there tells you that Paul is talking about the local church. Because the ministry of a pastor or an elder is limited to the local church. They're to tend the flock over which they have been appointed as overseers. Paul told the Ephesian elders in, in Acts 20 and and, and Peter made reference to feed the flock of God which is among you in 1 Peter the 5th chapter. So elders, a plurality of elders, two or more overseeing the local congregation. So again, apostles, prophets, inspired men, they laid the foundation. But you've got evangelists, pastors, and teachers. These are men that are, and, and for that matter, within the framework of, 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 of what is permitted by Scripture and authorized by Scripture, women as well. Titus chapter 2 refers to the older women, for example, teaching the younger women. So teachers, but now let's continue. God has given all of this. He's equipped us for what? It's verse 12, for the equipping of the saints for the work of ministry, for the edifying of the body of Christ, till we all come to the unity of the faith and to the knowledge of the Son of God, to a perfect man, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ, verse 14, that we should no longer be children. God wants us to grow up. No longer children tossed to and fro and carried about with every wind of doctrine by the trickery of men and the cunning craftiness by which they lie in wait to deceive. There's danger out there. Children can be gullible. And when, when grown men and women are like children and their understanding... They can be led away by false teachers. Every wind of doctrine that's blowing, just whatever is the latest fad. He says, God doesn't want that. Speaking the truth in love may, look at this, may grow up in all things into him who is head, Christ, from whom the whole body joined and knit together by what every joint supplies, according to the effective working by which every part does its share, causes growth of the body for the edifying of itself in love. Now, if you're a member of the church right here at Cortez and you're reading this passage with me, 
what, what do you see there in this text, in verse 16? When it, when it speaks of what every joint supplies, that's using a figure of speech. You know, the body has joints, it has ligaments, it has different parts. But here he's talking about joining it together by what every joint supplies. Well, see, if you're a member of the church here at Cortez, you're a, a joint in that local body, don't you see? And it says, according to the effective working, we, we want to be effective, don't we? Effective working, but look at it, by which every part does its share. And that, that's not comparing what you're doing with somebody else is doing. That's you doing what you're supposed to do, but every part doing its share. What does that cause? It causes growth of the body for the edifying of itself in love. Don't you see that if every part fails to do its share, that it can cripple the growth. It can hinder the growth. It will certainly be less than what it could otherwise be. So this is, don't you agree that this is a, a fair passage? It's a good passage to consider in all fairness to the topic of, of what is it that makes a strong church. First of all, we see, yes, the elders have their work. Evangelists have their work. Teachers have their work. We see that above, but we keep reading, and we're reading verses about every part, every joint, and uh, doing its share, causing growth for the body, so we're all in this together. We're looking tonight at the scriptures to see what, what causes, what causes a church to be strong. I don't really have any ranking of order in, in the, the things that I've listed tonight in, in terms of saying number one is the most important, number two is less important. I'm going to mention a few things and we'll look at passages. And it's not an exhaustive list, but it's some things that I know will make the church at Hansville where we're a part of locally. And other congregations, I know that this will help us to be stronger. But my first point is, that there cannot be strength without the preaching of sound doctrine. When you read 1 Timothy and 2 Timothy and Titus, these were three letters not written to churches, but written to preachers. Timothy was a preacher. Titus was a preacher. We're not going to do this tonight, but sometime, and, I, and you may have already done it, but sometime just take the time to go through and see how many times reference is made to preaching sound doctrine, following the pattern of sound words. And, and not only is, is that enjoined upon these men, but also warnings against any who would go astray. Let's just look at one of these. For example, in 2 Timothy chapter 4, 2 Timothy was Paul's last letter to write. When he wrote this, he was a short time away from his death, and he makes reference to that in this same chapter. But in 2 Timothy chapter 4, beginning at verse 1, I charge you, therefore, before God and the Lord Jesus Christ, who shall judge the living and the dead at his appearing and his kingdom. I mean, before anything else is said, you can tell this is a pretty serious charge. Preach the word. Be instant, in season, out of season. Reprove, rebuke, exhort with all long-suffering and doctrine. These are Paul's last words. It's important to him. He says the time will come they will not endure sound doctrine, but having itching ears will, uh, according to their own desires, because they have itching ears, they will heap up for themselves teachers. Have you ever noticed that word heap? If there's a whole heap of something, there's a lot of it. And here that expression is used in regard to false teachers. Just they'll heap up for themselves teachers 
and they will turn away their ears from the truth and turn aside into fables. And so, Timothy, what, what are you to do about that? Uh, kind of meet them halfway. You give a little, they'll give a little. Look at verse 5. You be watchful in all things. Endure afflictions. Do the work of an evangelist. Fulfill your ministry. Now, Paul, was at, Paul had left Timothy at Ephesus. He mentions this earlier in, um, in the first Timothy letter. And he's, he's charged to do the work of an evangelist there at Ephesus and, and to preach that sound doctrine, but to be watchful, be aware of the fact that there would be those he's to charge men not to teach another doctrine. But the point of it is, why did Paul want Timothy there in the first place? Well, to build the church up. He sent Timothy there to help out in the work. And so, so you read the kind of things that he said, and you, you can't have a strong congregation with weak preaching. You can't have a strong congregation if there's false doctrine, for sure, being taught. But even if what is said might be true, if it stays on the surface, if there's not application, if there's not some, a balance of the milk of the word and the meat of the word and, and pure sound doctrine being taught, a congregation is going to be weak. It simply cannot be strong as it should. I think in terms of the way the church began on the day of Pentecost in Acts chapter 2, you men of Israel hear these words, Jesus of Nazareth, a man approved of God, among you by miracles and wonders and signs, which, which uh, he, he did among you. The text says, you have taken him, and by wicked hands you have crucified and slain. You put him to death, verse 24, whom God raised up, having loosed the pangs of death, because it was not possible that he should be holden of it. For David says concerning him, I saw the Lord always before my face. He is at my right hand that I should not be moved. Therefore my heart rejoiced and my tongue was glad. My flesh also will rest in hope because you will not leave my soul in Hades. Neither will you suffer your Holy One to see corruption. You've made known to me the ways of life. You will make me full of joy in your presence. What's, what's Peter doing? He's laying the groundwork. Christ crucified raised from the dead. He, he quoted from the scriptures where David foretold the resurrection of Jesus Christ, not only his resurrection, his ascension to the right hand of God. And he says, therefore, in verse 36, let all the house of Israel know assuredly that God has made that same Jesus whom you crucified, both Lord and Christ. Powerful preaching. Jesus Christ and him crucified. The gospel, that which saves, and when they heard this, they were pricked in their heart. And they said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, Men and brethren, what shall we do? And that's when Peter said, Repent and be baptized every one of you in the name of Jesus Christ for the remission of sins. And you shall receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. Strong congregations are hearing that kind of preaching. They're hearing preaching that's centered on Jesus and Him crucified. And what must I do to be saved? That's not all. But that's certainly included. There, there's that ring of truth. There, there's the gospel message that, that, that the beginning is there in Acts chapter 2. But then that preaching continues throughout the book of Acts. And it continues in strong congregations today. 
The reason is faith comes by hearing, and hearing by the Word of God. So, so strong preaching. But I want to suggest to you something else that makes for a strong congregation. And that is, when there's genuine conversion. As, as good as the preaching must be, and as necessary as it is for there to be sound doctrine on the part of us as hearers, there must be faithfulness. There must be, there must be genuine conversion. There are passages that uh, come to mind. For example, right here in, in Acts 2, verse 37. When they heard this, they were cut to the heart. They were pricked in their heart. And so that's, that's where conversion begins. It, it's in the heart. And a lot of times people, if, if, there, if there is that sense of guilt and burden, there are people that will say, oh, don't worry about that. That, that, that. Those religious people trying to put a guilt trip on you, and, um, you know, you just, uh, you just just cast away all those childish notions. And a lot of people just think you should not have any feelings about guilt whatsoever. Guilt is a good thing. The conscience is God-given. And the reason I say the, the feelings of guilt, I'm talking about in a context. You know, like for example, John 16 and verse 8, when Jesus said, when the Spirit will come, He will convict the world in respect of sin and of righteousness and of judgment. And when this word is being faithfully preached, when sound doctrine is being preached, this is the sword of the Spirit. And those feelings of guilt are good. It was good for them to be pricked to the heart. The Bible talks about this thing called godly sorrow in 2 Corinthians 7 and verse 10. Godly sorrow that leads to repentance. That's the kind of sorrow that brings about salvation. So it's a good thing. Blessed are those that mourn for they shall be comforted and conversion undergoes that process. There's mourning for sin. There's the experience of being pricked in the heart. And, and there's, it's not just, but you don't stop there. It's then turning to the Lord on His terms, you see. And that's when there's the knowledge that no more guilt. Because every sin, every lawless deed, it's, it's all remitted by the blood of Christ. In the book of Acts, in Acts chapter 11, I love to read, after the door of faith was opened to the Gentiles, in Acts the 10th chapter, and the first part of the 11th chapter, Peter retells the story about what happens at the household of Cornelius. But after that part, you get on down. Now that the, now that the door has been opened to Gentiles, you come on to Acts 11, verse 20. And some of them were men from Cyprus and Cyrene, who when they had come to Antioch, spoke to the Hellenists. The, the, these are Greeks preaching the Lord Jesus. Now that means, that's in contrast in verse 19 to some that were preaching to Jews. Last part of verse 19 says they were preaching to no one but the Jews only. So when the next verse says, but, but others went to Antioch and they were preaching to the Greeks. So these are Gentiles. And the hand of the Lord was with them and a great number believed and turned to the Lord. That's the conversion process. They turned to the Lord. And when they obeyed the gospel, what happened in verse 24 is they were added, latter part of verse 24, they were added to the Lord. 
not, not the men who preached, not to a denomination. They were added to the Lord, to his church. When Barnabas came in verse 23 and encouraged them, it, it says he encouraged them that they should continue with the Lord. Now, does that help us to understand what's happening on a local level? We come down to verse 26. It speaks of Barnabas in verse 25 making the journey to Tarsus to seek for Saul. We know him better, of course, as Paul. But it says, when he found him and brought him to Antioch, he brought him to Antioch. So it was that for a whole year they assembled with the church. That's talking about the local church at Antioch. That's comprised of people that first have been converted to the Lord. But because they lived in that area, they, they banded together. They're, they're, they're a local congregation, the local church at Antioch. And so they, they assembled with the church and taught a great many people. And by the way, it goes on to say the disciples were first called Christians in Antioch. What made the church at Antioch strong? What made the church at Jerusalem strong? People were pricked in the heart by, gospel, by sound gospel preaching. People turned to the Lord. Now, now this Acts 11 is a kind of a summary statement. There's brevity there. But the expression, turn to the Lord, stands for all that Jesus said to do. It stands for the kind of answer Peter gave. Truth is always consistent and harmonious. Turn to the Lord here means if they yielded, they obeyed from the heart the gospel of Christ. That's how anyone enters Christ. So you're, they're added to the, the church, remember, in the universal sense, but it goes on to talk about this wonderful opportunity now at Antioch as, as more people are being taught, as, as Paul is helping, people are added to the Lord, and here they are teaching the church at Antioch. And it, it, just, it just thrills me to think in terms of the joy that was there. But these are people that are, they've turned to the Lord. I, I spend a lot of time uh, trying to deal with that concept of what it means, like in Matthew 22, verse 37, when Jesus said, you're to love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. To be, see, so many, so many problems, so many issues would be, would be fixed if we would do just that, if we had complete commitment to the Lord. It would just take care of so much. And on the other hand, so many problems will never be addressed or fixed until we do just that. Sometimes I like, I like to use a Bible illustration. I, I know there are a lot of illustrations from life. There are a lot of, of things that, that will come to mind that, that will be good illustrations. But sometimes a concept... Uh, can, I can do no better than to go to God's Word. And one of the things that I keep coming back to is what I would call appendix material in the book of 2 Samuel. I'm just going to summarize it. I'm not asking you to turn there, but I'll give you the passage. It'll be found in, in 2 Samuel 23. But don't read that as if that comes after all these other things. It's, it's, as I say, it's appendix kind of material. It looks back at some things that had previously happened. And we know for sure some of the things there had previously happened and don't happen after 23. That's just when they're put there. But anyway, it tells of a time that the Philistines had the upper hand. And David, when I say they had the upper hand, the Philistines, do you know your Bible geography? They were a coastal people, southwestern portion of, of the land of Palestine. And they, you know where Bethlehem is? Six miles south of Jerusalem in the hill country of Judea. And they have a garrison at Bethlehem. Bethlehem is David's hometown. David was of the city of Bethlehem. But the Philistines had the upper hand. And he's in a place called Adullam, a stronghold. 
And he's, in fact, it calls it the Cave of Adullam. I've been to the Cave of Adullam, and I can see it's a good place to hide and also to watch out. You can see for miles from there. And you can look in the direction of where Bethlehem was. And David, had, his men are in there. And it's just one of those moments. I don't, it says he was shut up there. He, he, he was confined. This is earlier in his, in his life. And the Philistines are, are oppressing. And, and he has his men with him. And he just says, oh, that someone would get me water to drink from the well at, at Bethlehem. Well, the well by the gate at Bethlehem. You have to understand, David is not saying, you go and you leave and you do that. I'm commanding you to do that. It's just, I, I take it like sometimes, if I were to put myself in that situation, it's like, I would say, wouldn't that hit the spot? Oh, wouldn't that be good right now? By the way, at Adullam, uh, there is a cistern there. You know, cistern holds runoff water. So you, yeah, you had water. But that's different than what David was talking about, the well by the gate at Bethlehem. He knew how cool that was, how good that tasted. Oh, wouldn't that be good right now? But here's the thing. No sooner had he said that than three of his mighty men left the cave. It's about 12 miles from the cave of Adullam to Bethlehem. And when they got there, the text says that they broke through the host of the Philistines. I don't know how three men did that. But they broke through the host of the Philistines. They drew the water. They made their way back to the cave. Here's your water, David. And the text says he was so moved he couldn't drink it. He poured it out as a drink offering to the Lord. Far be it from me that I could drink. This is a drink. It would be like drinking the blood of these men. And as much as he wanted that, he sacrificed it. He poured it out as a drink offering to the Lord. What was wrong with those guys? They loved David. All they cared about was David. All they cared about was doing what David wanted. And if they just kind of got his drift, kind of reminds me, did, did any of you know Irvin Lee? Did anybody here? Irvin Lee was a household name in Alabama. He helped start more than 30 congregations. One time he was with me when we were in Middle Tennessee. Uh, a couple of times he was with me. One time we were doing a radio program together for a week, and it was a call-in program. And uh, I don't. This was back, you know, years ago, back in the '70s. So I, I, I was opening the lines. I was kind of, you know, we've got Brother Lee with us, and and. Um, we would like to, to receive your Bible questions. He's here preaching the gospel in our meeting at night, but he's here with us on the radio program, and you have a question, phone that in. And, you know, if, if, uh, if, if you do that, I have some years of radio experience, and uh, sometimes you got more calls than you can answer, and sometimes you're sitting there hoping somebody will call. <laughs> you're almost saying, please call. <laughs> and you give the number, you give the time for services. But anyway, the, and, and sometimes when people call, you can't always do something. You have to be very imaginative to do something. I remember one time on my, on my radio program, somebody called and he said, um, where does the Bible say that Judas had red hair? Well, there's not a passage that says that at all. Where did they come up with that? And even if there was, what, what kind of teachable moment would that be? But anyway, this time Brother Lee was with us, had a good question. Somebody called and said, where does it say in the Bible that it is, can you show me and prove from the Bible that it's essential to be baptized in order to be saved? 
And I said, thank you, ma'am. This is a good question. I appreciate that. And I thought, this is something we can do with, an opportunity to teach the plan of salvation. So we just had one microphone. I remember scooting a little bit where Brother Lee could be there. Brother Lee, here's the question. Can you show from the Bible it is essential to be baptized to be saved? And uh, I'd like to get your thoughts on that. And so he's sitting here. I turned the microphone, and I still remember this. He goes, I don't like the question. And I was thinking, oh, you don't, Brother Lee, you don't say that. You know, you thank people. He said, the Lord did so much for us. He died, he suffered and died for us. He said, if I could just show you one passage in all the Bible where all the Lord said was, I just sort of wish you'd be baptized. And that's all he said. He said, we should jump to be baptized. Now, we went ahead and looked at some passages that talk about the role of baptism and salvation, but I learned something that day. I was in my 20s. Brother Lee had many years on him. And he had seen that attitude before that would say, can you show me exactly how much I have to give or exactly how much I have to attend? And if you can't show a verse that says that, then I'll do what I please kind of attitude. Instead of the attitude that's just wanting to know what does the Lord want here and then jumping to do that. If we have the attitude David's men had, if we have the attitude Brother Lee's talking about, don't you see how that'll make a strong congregation? Committed to the Lord and just loving the Lord, wanting to do His will. Let me suggest to you something else about the church that we read about in Acts chapter 2. Not only is there the sound preaching of the gospel, not only is there genuine conversion, but there's also steadfastness. The follow-up, steadfastness, is so important. In Acts 2, verse 41, that's the passage that says 3,000 gladly received the word and were baptized in that day, it says. There were unto them 3,000 souls. But the next verse says, verse 42, says they continued steadfastly in the apostles' doctrine, fellowship, breaking of bread, and prayers. The New American Standard says they were continually devoted to the apostles' teaching. So the, the, the concept of steadfastness, you see, if, if we're dependable, if we're deeply rooted and grounded, continuing steadfastly, oh, that's going to help a local congregation so much. A person may not be the loudest person or might not call attention to himself, but if you can just count on them, consistently to be present and, and to be willing and desirous to, like we said from Ephesians 4, to, you know, what, what can I do? And there's, there's so much for us to, to look and see and do, and if we need some help, we can get someone to help show us some things perhaps we could do. Steadfastness. Each time when we have someone converted to the Lord, I try, if at all possible, to follow up with, with, with personal studies because it is so important that a new convert be deeply grounded and rooted and, and stabilized. And, and, and then, then to just continue to grow and develop. That, that's, that's so important. I remember one time uh, my wife and I both just, as a matter of fact, we, we have uh, certification as, as teachers. Um, I was attending an education course one time that uh, 
uh, where some will come and just have their certification renewed. And I remember a fellow that was in post-secondary, he was at a, at a trade school, um, and he, he, he made a point in the class. He said, we get calls all the time from industry, from, from industry that uh, needs workers. And he said, when they call us, they never say, um, when they're asking about his students there at the trade school, he said, they never say, what kind of grades does he make? They don't ask that. They don't say, how smart is he? He said they ask one thing. They say, is he dependable? Because if he's not dependable, it doesn't matter how smart he is. If he's not dependable, it doesn't matter how much he knows. But if he's dependable, and he says there's something, industry will say, if there's something he doesn't know, we'll train him. We can do that. But they're looking for people that are dependable. Can God count on you? How, how dependable are we? And, and so that, that steadfastness, that dependability, that, that's another one of those essential things that make a local church strong. Let me suggest to you a fourth thing that we see, and that is in Acts 2 and verse 42, it, it says that they were, they were together. All who believed were together. Now I know that there's a context here, and he's going to, talk, he's going to go on to say, that there's going to be a, a financial crisis that some are having. And so there's going to be some liberal giving to help meet those needs. But there's a lesson just to stop there and, say, and notice that it says they were together. There's unity in this local church. I, I know that they were one in Christ. That's the basis of unity. But as a congregation, they were together. It takes time. It takes effort to have a real sense of togetherness. But it's worth the time. It, it, you know, you have to invest yourself in others. You have to be available. It, it may involve having someone in your home or, or meeting somewhere. It, it involves more things than what we can do at services. But that, that sense of unity, the, the ongoing brotherhood, when Jesus said, by this shall... All men know that you're my disciples, that you love one another. In John 13, verse 35, that's the mark of discipleship. And so throughout the book of Acts, you're, you're going to see that that's kind of a, a catchword almost. If they, they were together, disciples were together, and that sense of togetherness and unity and fellowship, they're one in Christ, they love each other. And that's what we should be known for. God hasn't put us in the position of trying to get to heaven all by ourselves. We need each other. And what a difference it makes when, when there are brothers and sisters that you're, we're in this thing together. And there's that, uh, some congregations don't have that. Some, some are, it, it's, it's folks are not speaking to each other and it's, it's, uh, it's, it's just in and out the door, you know, just, you know, that, that's, that's all anybody wants, wants of that. There's not going to be much togetherness that way. So, so to, to be a strong church, it's, we just, back at Hansel, we're studying in 1 Corinthians, and we just recently were studying, in fact, last Wednesday night before coming here to the meeting, we were studying 1 Corinthians chapter 12. And Paul uses the image. We see at Corinth there was a lot of divisiveness. And 
Paul talks about how that uh, the eye can't say to the hand, I don't have any need of you, verse 21. And, and he goes through the members of the body. Verse 25, that there should be no schism in the body, that the members should have the same care one for another. If one member suffers, all the members suffer with it. One member is honored, all the members rejoice with it. That's what Paul wanted there to be at Corinth, but that's what was missing at Corinth, that kind of unity. In fact, he starts out in the first three chapters by talking about chapter 1, verse 10, I hear that there are divisions among you. And so uh, the, the, the sense of togetherness and brotherly love that, I, let me just notice along that line over in 1 Thessalonians, the fourth chapter, I was, I was going over this one also today with a view of using that tonight. In 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verse 9. But concerning brotherly love, you have no need that I should write to you, for you yourselves are taught by God to love one another. And indeed you do so toward all the brethren who are in Macedonia, but we urge you, brethren, that you could increase, that you increase more and more. You know, I like passages like that. What do you tell somebody when they're doing the right thing and you don't need to correct them? Do more of it. Keep up the good work. Isn't that what Paul is saying here? You don't really need for me to write to you to love one another. You're doing that. But what he says in verse 10 is, I urge you that you increase more and more. And brethren, when we have that attitude that things are going well here, if, if that's the case, if, if we can say things are going well here, but let's get on to the next level. Uh, th there's brotherly love, let's, let's abound yet more and more. I like to see those passages that encourage, here's something good, you just keep on increasing in that. Let me suggest to you that a strong church also is evangelistic, that there's outreach. And that means many things, but praying that God will put in your path someone you can teach, someone you can study with. Looking for opportunities to turn a conversation in, into an opportunity for Bible study. One of the best couples I know about doing that, um, John and Lisa Haynes up in Canada, in Ontario. I, I may be using, referring to folks that you all don't know. John is a Canadian, Lisa is as well. Um, though he's preached some in the States, but they're up in, in, in Ontario, and he's having more studies, just, uh, they'll go into a bakery or a doctor's office. He's suffering from cancer. He has liver cancer. And he, he had studies with his therapist there and baptized her and had follow-up studies. And, and they, the, I feel sometimes they put me to shame just in terms of how open they are in terms of, of uh, well, would you, would you be interested in reading the Bible with me? And, and the church at, at Jerusalem, even when there was persecution, it says that they, that they were, that were scattered went everywhere preaching the word. That church at Antioch that we were talking about a while ago, that had, had so many sound doctrine, good teachers, where does Paul start each time? Where does the Holy Spirit determine is the starting point? for that first missionary journey. You look at Acts chapter 13. It's the church at Antioch. It's brethren there that laid hands on Paul and Barnabas. 
and sent them off on that first missionary journey. They're the ones that came back in Acts uh, 14 to Antioch and told the church all the things God had done with them. And that's the beginning point of the second journey and third journey as well. That church at Antioch was interested in evangelism. And uh, that, that spirit of, of, of individually wanting to study, tell others what you have done to obey the gospel. The best contacts are usually not made with somebody just door knocking, you know, blindly. Uh, I mean, once in a while you reach somebody that, that's looking, and God in His providence can use that. But often it's people that we know that have seen something attractive about the gospel in our lives that will turn out to be the best contacts. We just need to have the spirit of, of faith and determination to ask and to turn it that way and to look for opportunities. But let me suggest to you that when necessary, a strong church exercises discipline. A strong church is a pure church. And in 1 Corinthians chapter 5, when impurity threatened the church at Corinth, Paul says, you're, you're suffering, long-suffering with this fellow. Fellowshipping this fellow is not a good thing. Don't you know that a little leaven leavens the whole lump? He said, put away this wicked man from among yourselves. And so it was done that he might be saved, but it was also done for the purity of the church. A strong church is a disciplined church. And Paul used the analogy of the church being the bride of Christ and wanting to present the bride to, to the Lord as pure and chaste. And so, though it's not, never a pleasant thing, when, there, when it becomes necessary to exercise church discipline, to withdraw from those that are disorderly, a strong church does that. A strong church, when there are no elders, and the church where we moved to in Hansville in 1989 had not had elders for more than 30 years. Many churches haven't had elders ever in their history. Some have, but no longer have. But at Hansville, I, I viewed that as something that as an evangelist, that I needed to help the church work toward the time that we could appoint men who would serve as elders. And, and a strong church, even if you don't have elders, is looking toward that. You're, you're, you're working toward that time, and it's not something we just, just you know, put on the back burner and don't think about. Final point. A strong church is a happy church. To rejoice in the Lord. Paul says, for me to remind you of this is not irksome. For you it is necessary. I'm talking about Philippians, the third chapter, where, where Paul does that. I'm, I'm going back also to Acts chapter 2. I, I keep referring to the beginning there in the church at Jerusalem. In Acts 2 and verse 46 Continuing daily with one accord in the temple. In these early days they could meet at the temple grounds to worship. And breaking bread from house to house. That's not the Lord's Supper here. That's meals. They, because it goes on to say, they ate their food with gladness. They ate their food with gladness and simplicity of heart. Praising God and having favor with all the people. Don't you see the joy that's there. I've said about this passage sometimes when it says they ate their food with gladness, that it's not like, you know, before they, they were baptized in verse uh, 41, and it's not like, well, before they were baptized, they didn't eat any food, and now that they're baptized, they ate their food. Well, of course, they'd always been eating. But what he's saying is 
It takes on a new meaning now. Here they are in Christ. Now they have their sins forgiven. Now they're joyful Christians. They ate their food with gladness and simplicity of heart. Puts me in mind of Nehemiah chapter 8. When the law, after so many years of neglect, now it's, they've asked Ezra to read the law, and he's reading it, the Levites are reading it, and the people stand up when the law is read, and they're just crying. And they have to be told, don't weep today. This is not a day for weeping. Nehemiah 8 and verse 10 says, For the joy of the Lord is your strength. You see, if we, if, you, if we view being a Christian as just being a drearysome thing, you know, it's just, I don't want to go to hell, so there are things I've got to do, and it's such a burdensome thing like that. We'll never be strong, and we're not contributing to a strong congregation. But it's when, it's when, we, when we taste and see that the Lord is good, when we delight in His will, when we're growing in, in grace and truth, uh, and knowledge, then we find that our joy becomes a source of strength to us. We're, we're just looking at qualities we see in the scriptures, and, and I maintain, as we wrap this up, that if the church today, anywhere, any place, in this location, or where I'm at, or any place, if it has these qualities from the scripture, it will be a strong congregation, even if small, or large, it'll be strong. And, and it will be growing spiritually, and we trust numerically. And the Lord wants no less, and He is deserving of our very best efforts. And so, to whatever extent, we can look at ourselves and look at these passages and say, starting tonight, I'm going to do my part to make this a strong congregation. Wouldn't that be a wonderful thing? And pray for God's help, and you know He will bless you in the doing of that. Tonight, if you have never yet rendered obedience to the gospel, we've been speaking all week. We've included that, I think, in every message, some more than others. But if anyone stands in need of rendering obedience to the gospel, we're here for you. There may be someone that should need to be, that would rather need to be restored to the Lord. And if we can assist you in that or help you in any way, we encourage you to let us know that as together we stand and sing.